I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Sometimes I do the announcements as well um, and know how difficult they are. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Uh, I, I want you to know if, if you grab one of these pew, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available on the back table. Uh, in our pew Bibles, we're going to be on page 800. And uh, I want you to know that Cross of Grace is a great, safe place to learn what is in the Bible. Uh, I met a, a guy after the first service that started coming recently in the last few weeks. Uh, grew up Catholic, kind of would go to Mass off and on, but God uh, kind of arrested him recently. He began coming, and he just left with a pile of books from the $0 bookstore over there. And I gave him some more books. Uh, and, and he was really looking forward to this being a place where he could understand for himself what the Bible teaches. And so if that's you, welcome. Uh, gather around the table. Uh, we also have small groups where you're able to do that with other people and learn how to read the Bible with others, just like my group did uh, this last week. So uh, if, you're, if you're here and that's you, we want you to know uh, you're not weird. You're, you're not behind. You're right where you're supposed to be, and you're welcome. Uh, we are, you're welcome here. So Mark chapter 15, uh, we are at the end of the gospel. A few climactic passages left. We will finish the gospel this month, uh, and I, I can't wait uh, to see what the Lord has for us. So let's do this. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. This is a bit of a lengthier section. We stand to say this is God's word and we hold it in reverence. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they let him out to crucify him. This is God's word. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the King today. Amen. Let me take a seat. 
My first job was not a job I applied for. It was a job that found me. Uh, I was at a family gathering, and my grandfather, who had uh, many decades earlier started a company here in El Paso and and had grown it, uh, and and my dad worked at the company. My dad contributed to growing that company. Uh, He found me at a family gathering, kind of looked me up and down and realized, okay, this kid's about 16 years old, and said, I've got a job for you. He didn't ask if I wanted the job. He informed me that there was a job and that I would be doing it. And so uh, I drove into, when I got out of school that summer, uh, I drove to, to, to the office with my dad, and I'd been to the office many times before. The office was a pretty nice, comfortable place. It had these beautiful glass windows on the side that you can kind of see out and, and had offices here and there, and some of them were individual, some of them were in a bullpen kind of situation, and everybody was typing furiously and handing papers back and forth. It was a customs brokerage agency, and and so I assumed, okay, I'm excited, I'm 16, it's going to be my first job, uh, I'm going to be in one of these little areas typing, delivering papers, something like that. So I get there, I get to my grandfather's office, and he gets up, and he was, he was probably in his, he was probably 80 by then, or early 80s, and he said, follow me. And so he opens a door that I didn't even see, I don't think I'd ever known the door was there, he opens this door and it leads to a stairwell. So I'm thinking, okay, where are we going? So he takes me up the stairwell. And we arrive not in a nice office, but in what was like a combination storage slash staging room slash file room. And it was dusty. You could tell like people do not come up here a lot. Uh, it was used for storage, so it was not air conditioned. This was El Paso in the summer. And even at like 9 a.m., you could start to feel the heat off the windows. And he said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to file all these files. You're going to check to make sure they're all in the right order. And you're going to pull the ones out of order. And you're going to file them back in the right order. And, you know, basically that's what you're going to do. And so I looked at this and I saw like file after file after file after file. And I asked him, well, how long do you want me to do this? And he said, until it's done. And so I realized, oh, this is not like a week job. This is like several weeks. This might be my lifetime. I don't know. This is a huge filing room. And, and he turned to go down the stairs, and I, and I had this thought. So he goes down the stairs, and I'm there by myself. I think I'd worn even like some nice clothes or something, you know, thinking I'm going to be typing away. And roll up my sleeves. The heat's coming off the windows already, and I realize this is going to be hot, dusty, boring, difficult work. And there no end in sight, and I had this thought, I think I'm in the wrong place here. I, I think I'm supposed to be downstairs with the air conditioning and the typing. Instead, I find myself upstairs with no air conditioning. And so, actually, the first week, I didn't drink enough water, and uh, I worked Monday through Thursday, and then Friday, I was, like, sick. I had, like, heat, whatever. I was, like, had stomach issues, <laughs> and, and basically got overheated. And I thought, okay, Monday, my dad's probably going to say, you know, Ricky, I'm sorry. That was a little bit too hard for you. You know, you don't have to go to the office anymore. Instead, what he said on Monday is, we're leaving at 8.30. And I got in the car and went back to the office. And I remember thinking repeatedly that summer, I think I'm in the wrong place. And uh, when I got my paycheck, I think, I, if, I'm tr- I was trying to remember this, but I think my grandfather decided that I would be paid minimum wage, which was a surprise to me because I was hoping for a little bit more but it was what I was worth, right? He was an accurate judge of my skills. And I remember looking at the paycheck in the dusty room thinking, this is not right. I I took a wrong turn somewhere. I'm supposed to be in the office. You know, our our last name is on the building. (laughs) 
I should, I, it was good for me. Now, that experience, though, I think is common to us as humans, but especially as Christians, where we arrive someplace and we begin to think, I think this is the wrong place. I, I think I took a wrong turn somewhere. I think I'm supposed to be in the air conditioning, and instead I find myself not there, uh, suffering from heat stroke, and I think I, I, somehow somebody miscommunicated something, and I'm not supposed to be here. Think of it this way. It may, maybe you're single, and and you're seeking to follow the Lord, and you're seeking to try to remain pure and have godly relationships, and you long for a spouse, and you do everything you can, and yet you wake up into another year, 2022, again without that spouse that you long for, and you wonder, am I in the right place? Or maybe you're, you're married, and your marriage has been difficult, and you and your spouse are trying to work through it, but it continues to be difficult, and, and you, you think, man, I took a wrong turn somewhere. I'm not in the right place here. Where did I go wrong? Or maybe you're suffering from the loss of a loved one recently, or the loss of a job, or the loss of a dream, and you're thinking, this is not the right place. I'm supposed to be over there, and yet I am over here. Or maybe you're just, you're feeling that our culture feels increasingly in some ways hostile uh, toward Christianity. You feel more marginalized at work or in your extended family because of your uh, efforts to follow Christ. And you're thinking, I'm not in the right place. <laughs> I, I, I got off the path somewhere. Well, the, the, the gospel of Mark was written in the context of persecution. Uh, this is a context where Christians who have decided to follow Jesus are facing opposition from the Jewish authorities wherever they go, and opposition now is beginning from Rome itself, meaning there's no refuge, that, that there's going to be pressure from all sides for these Christians, and there's an emphasis in the Gospel of Mark on suffering and persecution, and one of the purposes, the Gospel of Mark so carefully records the words of Jesus and the steps of Jesus and, the, the, and what occurred with Jesus on the way to the cross is because of Mark 8 where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. In some sense, Jesus' road to the cross is unique and only he walks it in, in a salvific sense. But in another sense, the road to the cross is our road as well. Uh, Mark slows down and shows us the steps along the road and what Jesus experiences because the road to the cross is our road. That's the main thing I think the text is impressing on us. This road is our road. But what I want you to hear from the beginning is that this road does not end in just sadness and hopelessness and, and loss. This road to the cross actually, according as Mark is walking us through this, will end in glory. This road to the cross will end someplace amazing, and, and we'll get a glimpse of that today. So, the road to the cross is our road. Now, three ways, three senses in which that's true. The first is this road, the road because of us. This road that Jesus walks is because of us. Now, the reality of the Gospel of Mark is that you see Jesus overcome every kind of opposition in the Gospel of Mark, right? I mean, he, he 
He, diseases cannot stand against him. He heals them instantly. Uh, demonic legions thrown against him can't stand him, and he casts them out with a word. The forces of nature and storms come against them, and he calms them with a word. So what Jesus experiences, it, it, it appears that Jesus is passive, in a sense, being led along by these events, but he is far from passive. Jesus chose the road to the cross. He says repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men. I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. Jesus chose this. He chooses to come back to Jerusalem knowing what awaits him. He chooses to stay every minute where he is on the road to the cross. So the question is why? Why does Jesus do this? It's unjust. It's wrong. Why does he do this? Because he does it for us. Now, one of the things that I was talking to Andrew in between services, and he was pointing out that when we read the Gospels, one of the things we often do is we look for ourselves, right? We're like, oh, I'm kind of a Peter, you know, I'm kind of, you know, Peter, and and, and we begin to think like, oh, you know, Jesus is Jesus, but I'm also there, and I'm also doing great, right? And in the Gospels, (laughs) systematically what Mark does is he says, okay, every single person fails except for Jesus. And when we look for ourselves in the Gospels, we're often looking in the wrong place. We're looking for the heroes. We're looking for who's heroic like me, where the Gospels are, are written, especially Mark is written, as a mirror to us. We're meant to find ourselves, in a sense, not in the gallery of heroes, but in the crowd shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. And and there are, I think, a few ways that that is true here, that this, this scene is written with a mirror. Right? This scene is a mirror for us. Look, look at some of these things and see if we can see some reflections of ourselves. First, you see the sinful instigators. You see the Sanhedrin's evil actions as Jesus is, is pushed down this unjust, this sham of a trial we saw last week. Pilate, their, their motives are so obvious that Pilate is even like, you're just doing this out of envy. You're just jealous of him. That's the only reason you're pushing him down this road to the cross. Pilate knows he's innocent, yet these people continue to push and push for his death. Not just for his silence, not just for his exile, but for his death. They must kill him. He's such a threat to them. Then you've got Pilate, who seems, in a sense, passive. In one of the Gospels, he washes his hands and says, listen, I I don't have anything to do with this. But you read the narrative, and he has everything to do with it. He stands by while a innocent man is brutally murdered through an unjust legal process, right? You see in the Sanhedrin the the sin of commission, but you see in Pilate the sin of omission, right? He does not do the good he ought to. And then in the crowd that gets whipped up against Jesus and in the guards, you see people that are more than happy. They see evil happening They're more than happy to simply go along with the evil. And we look at that and we're like, oh, this is so ugly. This is an ugly picture of the people of Jesus' day. But it may be closer to us than we want to admit. Uh, Kent Hughes' commentary, he shares a story about a missionary in Africa. And one of the one of the occurrences was that this local person comes to see the missionary, and the missionary had had a mirror hung up on uh, the tree. And so the 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 and the person had never seen a mirror before. And so the, the, 
he became alarmed when he could see a face in the mirror, and he didn't like it. And so he told the missionary, I need to buy this from you. I have to buy this from you. And, and became agitated. So the missionary just trying to, okay, I'm trying to be friendly with the locals. I guess I just won't have a mirror anymore. So he just, he, he, he gives the mirror to the local, and the local takes it, looks at it, smashes it on the ground. And the missionary's like, whoa, what, 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 what's going on? And the local person says, now that ugly man will never make faces at me again. Right? Not, not getting the irony that mi- the missionary's thinking, but you know that's you, right? <laughs> like, uh, uh, right? In the same way, the gospel of Mark shows us this ugly picture of the crowd, of, of this passive person allowing injustice to happen, of people shouting for crucifixion. And we think, oh, that's so ugly, where in reality, it's a mirror. Brothers and sisters, have we ever been threatened by God's rule in our lives so much that we're willing to cast it off and push it off at any cost? Have we ever been threatened by Jesus and decided to turn away from him rather than follow him? Have we ever been like Pilate, where we know the good we ought to do and do not do it, where we see an opportunity or a need to love our neighbor and we simply pass on by the other side? Have we withheld mercy or forgiveness? Have we, have we turned away from kindness? Have we sinned against a spouse or sinned against a friend or sinned against the Lord or sinned against a, a, a parent? Ha, have we sinned by commission doing things we ought not to? Have we sinned by omission not doing things we ought to? To do When we begin to ask those kinds of questions, we begin to see, oh, the people in Mark 15, they look a lot more like us than we think. And the Bible reveals the ugliness of sin. See, one of the things that happens over time is, is humanity just gets used to sin and we just don't see it in its ugliness anymore. We kind of are just like, okay, yeah, yeah, that, well, everybody kind of sins. But Mark 15, it stands out. And it's kind of perversity and ugliness that, that, that what occurs here should make us cringe, should make us go, oh, that they would have the Lord, God himself, their creator, their sustainer in front of them, and instead of coming to him, turn away from him. Instead of rejoicing in him, reject him. But the Bible reveals that that, that is humanity ever since Genesis chapter 3. Right, where God creates the world good and he gives humanity, Adam and Eve everything and, and they're tempted. And what's the temptation? The temptation is come eat this one fruit you're not supposed to eat and the serpent says, and you will be like God. Right? They, they, they have the good rule of God and yet they choose, no, I want to be the ruler. I want to be in charge. And that's what every single person does in this text. Right? The Sanhedrin are threatened by Jesus and they say, no, I want to be God. I want to be in charge. Pilate says, no, I have to hold on to my power. The crowd says, no, we, we need to follow the status quo. We need to listen to these scribes, or maybe they're even handed out money. Who knows? We, what's best for us is to get rid of him. Every single person makes this exchange. Now, if we see this, if we see us, ourselves where we ought to see ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to just drop in one thing that, that would change for us. And, and one of the things is, it should produce a profound humility, knowing that the road 
to the cross was necessary because of us. Right? There's, there's nobody that it was unnecessary for Jesus to walk to the road to the cross for. It's no, like, I'm going to go and die for the sins of the world except for Jerry. What a guy, you know. Jerry, thumbs up, you know, and then move on. Every single person who makes that exchange and continually repeats that exchange needs Jesus to walk the road to the cross for them. And if that's true, brothers and sisters, it should destroy any self-righteousness that lingers with us as Christians. Uh, look, let me, let's be frank. There are far too many arrogant Christians looking out at the world today, shaking their heads, wagging their fingers in self-righteousness, saying, I would never. Those people, right? What's that for you? When you see that group or that thing, you're like, those people. Maybe for you, it's seeing a, a, a you know, newscast of a political rally that is pro-abortion, and you just think, those people, I would never, right? Or, or maybe it's a certain political bumper sticker that somebody's got on their car, and as you're driving behind them in traffic, oh, you, you people, right? It's just that in you. The reality is this, brothers and sisters, when we see a sinner in our world around us, we should see ourselves. We should see that, that, that every single person on the face of the earth, including us, would cry out among the scoffers, crucify him. I think about that, that old line in the old hymn, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Right, that, that, that is true of all of us. And if that is true, the way we approach the world, listen, the way we approach the world goes from this to this, right? We're like, man, it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross for me. But I've got good news for you. It's point number one. Point number Okay, actually, point, before number two, before point number two, let me just drop this in, okay? If what you read or listen to is contributing to self-righteousness and pride and thinking yourself better than them, let me just encourage you, spend more time in the Word than with them, right? I'm talking about political stuff, cultural stuff. You start to listen to a podcast or a newscast, and, you're, and, and what you realize is happening in your heart is like, yeah, they're the worst, blah, you know? And look, what's happening around us may be grieving. We may need to take action or we may need to pray or or, or one of a number of things. But if it's just creating self-righteousness and pride that we're better than them, oh, brothers and sisters, we go back to the road to the cross. We see the crowd. We see Pilate. We see the Sanhedrin. We see ourselves. We find ourselves humble again. Okay, point number two, the road for us. There's good news, road for us. We come to one of the most perplexing exchanges in human history, right? Imagine the scene. So, so Pilate has this custom that once a year or so, he will release a prisoner that the, the Jewish people want him to release. And he does this kind of like throwing a bone to the people to keep everybody happy. Like, hey, I oppress you for 364 days a year, but one day a year I let a guy go. And people are like, that's a pretty good guy. I like, you know. 
And it pacifies the crowd and keeps everybody like, well, let's not do anything. He's, he'll, maybe he'll release, you know, our cousin. Um, and, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, I like, for, like, maybe he'll let Fernando out of prison. Like, let's be nice to him. And, and, and we don't really like Fernando, but just hoping that, you know, he'll release somebody. And it's just kind of a gesture, throwing the crowd a bone. And so what Pilate does is he sets up what he thinks is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, to quote the commercial with Charles Barkley. Have you guys seen that commercial with Charles Barkley where Charles Barkley uh, is, it, there's a bunch of kids playing basketball that are like 12, and they're picking teams, and it pans over, and there's like a 12-year-old, 12-year-old, 12-year-old Charles Barkley and a 12-year-old. And so the kid's are like, I'm going to go with Barkley. And Barkley's like, yes, right? Because you realize, if you don't know who Charles, I've I, I seen faces like you don't know who Charles Barkley is. That's concerning to me. Uh, for two reasons. One, you may not like basketball, and two, it means I'm old. And when all the Gen Z people saw that commercial, like, who's the bald guy? Um, all right, well, he's just a tall basketball player, okay? That's all you need to know for the sake of the commercial. So, Pilate is setting up what he thinks is the easiest decision ever, okay? On the one hand, you have Barabbas. Now, what you may be tempted to think about Barabbas is that he is just sort of a good-hearted freedom fighter that's, that's trying to fight against Roman oppression like the Maccabees and just, you know, doing the best he can. He's a man of the people, and people are like, yeah, I love Barabbas. Here's the reality, though, that kind of helps shape our understanding of Barabbas, okay? He, was, he was, uh, participated in an insurrection that failed, obviously. That's why he's in jail, so not a very good insurrectionist. And in the insurrection, we know two things about him. One, from John, we learned that he was a robber also. So this isn't like a dude, okay, you know, there's like a dude that's like, we're going to fight for freedom or whatever. Barabbas' picture is a little bit more self-serving. It's like, yeah, sure, let's destroy some property and we'll grab a little bit on the side, man. You know, like, yeah, down with the Roman Empire. Is that a gold bracelet? I'm going to go ahead and pocket that. You know, like, and you realize, okay, I think this guy is, is maybe not great. And then you learn in Mark that he committed murder in the insurrection. The picture we get is not that he's like fighting another Roman soldier, like, hey, that he murdered people. The picture you begin to get is this, this is a guy that is not, doesn't have good character. He, he, he is an anarchist. He's an insurrectionist in the worst sense. He's a robber. He's a murderer. So you have him on one side, and then you have Jesus. And so Barabbas takes things from people, but Jesus freely gives of himself. He feeds thousands of people on the fields rather than let them starve. Barabbas takes life from people. Jesus gives life to people. He heals. He, he even raises the dead, right? Lazarus is walking around, and people are like, I thought you died. And he's like, I did, right? This is, this is, the, this is the decision, do you want the life taker or the life giver? Do you want the, the, the person you can't trust for a minute or the person proved himself completely trustworthy? The person that over and over, they, they looked for Jesus, they looked for flaws or sins or weaknesses, can find nothing. He's completely clean. And he teaches like no one else. He points the way to God. He, he brings forgiveness and hope wherever he goes. And so Pilate, he, even he as a Roman who doesn't know anything about the Jewish scriptures, even he sees this God guy is innocent. And all he seems to do is care for people and love people and serve people. So I will stack him up against the worst person in the prison and say, okay, I'll, I'll release one of these. 
And then the crowd shouts, give us Barabbas. Now, now you may think, why? <laughs> and again, you may be thinking, I would never do that, right? I would always pick Jesus. No, remember what we just talked about. In the garden, our first parents make the decision that we all make, which is living under the good rulership and kingship of God, full of freedom and goodness, or our own reign, us on the throne. And the crowd, I think, in a real sense, everybody involved knows that Jesus really is the king. And they don't reject him because they aren't sure who he is. They reject him because of who he is. Because the reign of Jesus threatens their own reign. That is why the crowd shouts, crucify him. And here's what they do. They don't, they, they, they don't just say, okay, well, because he asks the crowd, what do you want to do with Jesus? And he's open to any number of lesser punishments, knowing that Jesus is innocent. And the crowd goes to the most extreme, brutal, humiliating form of death they can dole out. Watching somebody be nailed to a piece of wood and suffocate over hours in humiliation. That's what they choose. And again, he says, what evil has he done? And the crowd cannot answer because there is no answer to give. Because he hasn't done any evil. They know one thing, though. He threatens their reign, so they cry, crucify him. In, we see a glimpse of the brutality of this exchange in the scourging of Jesus before he even makes his way to the cross. Pilate has him scourged in an attempt in some way to pacify the crowd. And this is what that Entailed. So, so I want you to understand, in the very moment that they make this exchange, something happens. Barabbas goes free, and Jesus goes to this. The scourging, Kent Hughes says, was done by the dread flagellum whip, consisting of thongs plated with pieces of bone and lead. Eusebius tells of martyrs who were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. Josephus describes this in similar terms. The flagellum left Jesus with bone and cartilage showing. Quotes Isaiah, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. His brow wore the mocking crown of thorns. A faded purple robe, crimson with blood, hung dripping from his shoulders. In this moment, the crowd makes an exchange. They exchange the rulership and kingship of Jesus for their own. They, in a real sense, point to Jesus and say, you die for me. You die 
for me. I have to sacrifice you to continue to rule and reign in my own little world. And here is the, the, the amazing heart of the gospel, that while every human makes this exchange, him for me, Jesus incredibly agrees to the exchange in a sense. Jesus, when he hears them say, you for me, replies, yes, me for you. Jesus makes the exchange, him for us. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus' work this way, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the exchange, brothers and sisters, at the heart of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, that there would be a Barabbas standing on one side, a sinner, a somebody who deserves death, somebody who should rightly walk the road to the cross, and Jesus on the other side who only deserves freedom. And essentially Jesus says, I will walk his road for him. I will walk her road for her. Every single Christian. He makes that exchange for every blood-bought son and daughter. He makes that exchange for. Maybe you've been here and you've been like, man, these, these people sing a lot about the cross. They sing a lot about this exchange. They, they talk a lot about it. Yeah, we do. Because it is the heart of the gospel. And here is the beauty of Mark. Mark knows this. Mark knows Isaiah. And Mark writes in such a way that before Jesus goes to the cross, he gives us in Jesus and Barabbas a glimpse of what will occur on the cross. And a glimpse of what will occur for every blood-bought son and daughter of God. I love that, that our team uh, of elders studies the Bible together, and this week Vince sent me some notes as we were going over the passage together, and his notes were too good not to read, so I'm going to read them. Come on, this is Vince. You have to imagine his voice preaching this better than me, but he points out the son of the father is the true meaning of Barabbas' name, Bar-Abbas, right? The name Abba, you may have heard, Abba, father, Bar-Abba, the son of the father, the son of the father, this son of the father, Barabbas, was a false son of the father, but was set free at the cost of the true son of the father. In the same way, we, false sons who are guilty of cosmic insurrection, are set free at the cost of the true son of the father. And in the greatest act of grace, we become true sons of the Father. After the exchange, Barabbas got to go home to his family. Barabbas got to leave the prison. Barabbas got to enjoy the fruits of Jesus being sentenced. And likewise, we get to come home to our true Father. We are set free from the prison of drug abuse and pain and sin. You go on. We get to enjoy the fruits of Jesus being sentenced. 
in that moment as the exchange takes place and Jesus is led away to be brutally killed. Barabbas' family, I imagine, runs to greet him and he goes to sleep in his own bed with his own family while Jesus cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see the extent of the exchange? It is endless. It is infinite. The true son of the father for the false son of the father. But because of that exchange, incredibly, amazingly, those who are false sons become true sons or can become true sons because of Jesus. Can be welcomed home. Can be welcomed in by the father. And look, if you're here today and you're not a Christian or maybe you're in the place with this brother that, that I was talking to that's recently become a Christian, you, you got to understand this. You have to make this exchange. It's held out for you and you are invited to make it, but you must Make it. You must acknowledge Jesus as king, repent of your sins, and cling to him. Believe that he is who he claimed to be, the son of the father. And believe the exchange was for you. And it seems like, okay, that, that seems like not enough. I should have to go do like a hundred. He's coming from a Catholic background. So he's thinking, I got to go do a hundred good deeds, a hundred thousand good deeds. I got to do this, I got to do that. And, and then maybe someday I'll be worth the exchange. No, you can't. What you can do is receive it. It is held out for you today. Receive it. Receive it with joy. And if you are a Christian, let, let me just say, look, I, I think one of the purposes of the gospel of Mark and, and one of the, the uses of Mark as we continue to be Christians year over year over year is that as we walk the steps of the Savior with him, that we continue to be filled with wonder and amazement at what he has done year over year. Uh, Tom Wilkins, who's one of our pastors and is being sent out later this at the end of this month to, I don't want to think about that, Tom, being sent out sometime in the future that we won't think about to serve another sister church. Uh, he was my youth leader, he was my singles leader, my pastor, still is my pastor, and one of the things in, in our singles group is one of the guys that was new to the group called Tom the crying pastor because every time he talked about Jesus, Tom would like get emotional, even like at his house, right? You, know, you might think, okay, well, in the pulpit, he'd get emotional. No, just like in his house, he would talk about Jesus and tears would come to his eyes. And I remember Tom preaching through the gospel of Luke, and I don't remember any of the outlines Tom used. It's not like I remember, oh, yeah, point number three from that sermon on December you know, 3rd was really, really good. Here's what I remember about Tom's series in the Gospel of Luke. Week after week after week, Tom cried as he described what Jesus had done for him. And at some point I thought, okay, we're going to like move on and he's going to just kind of stop crying and it was every time we saw Jesus almost that he got, him, tears came to his eyes. And I was ashamed, I, I'm ashamed to say that at first I thought it was weakness. And the older I get, the more I see that he got it far better than me. That if you understand this exchange, <laughs> oh, brothers and sisters, every year that we 
continue to fail and fall in different ways, continue to commit sins in different ways, and we go back to the exchange and know that every one of those sins and failures is covered by the blood of Jesus. And it is still, the blood of Jesus is still doing what only it can do, which is to wash our sins away. And, and the, the, the arms of the Father are still open to us because of Jesus. And the house of the Father is still open to us because of Jesus. Every year we live, this exchange should be more strange, more amazing, and more glorious. And look, I, I'm great. let me just say this. I'm grateful that in recent years in the church broadly, we've, we've come to understand that, okay, there are different churches and different times that everything was a sin. You know, like any flaw in your character, anything going on hard in your life, it's like, oh, it's because you're probably sinning, you know. And we've, got, I think in a good way, even in our church, begun to understand, okay, that, that some people really have like clinical anxiety that they're dealing with. Some people have been sinned against, and, and there's effects in their life because of that. And you begin to understand, okay, people are complicated. They're sinned against. There's just weaknesses and, and, and problems that may not necessarily be a sin, but here's the danger. Okay, this is just this is my burden for us. As we understand that not everything is sin, let's not forget that we really do still sin. Like people may sin against us, but we sure sin back. We may have weaknesses, but we sure fail still. And here's my burden. If we think little of our Savior, it may well be because we think little of our sin. We think, I don't have a lot to be forgiven of. I'm pretty great, you know. Jesus is like, ah, love that guy, you know. Don't need to walk the cross. No. All of us, all of us are in the place of Barabbas. That's my burden. Okay, point number three, and, and this is the last one, the road with us. Now, this is, uh, stick with me because this is strangely encouraging, okay? At first, it will seem discouraging, but hang in there. Uh, one of the reasons I believe Mark lays this out is to help us understand that this road to the cross is the road for every Christian. Not in a salvific sense, not that we go to the cross to save ourselves or save somebody else like Jesus. We don't walk the road as far as Jesus does in a sense, but we walk the road of Jesus. Mark 8, 33 to 35 says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Meaning Jesus from, from the middle of Mark is calling us to the road of the cross with him. And remember who's reading this. These are persecuted Christians, people who were opposed by the Jewish authorities, people who were opposed by the Roman authorities, people who may well be reading the gospel of Mark under the reign of Nero as he burned Christians on crosses for torches to light his palace. And they are wondering, did we go wrong somewhere? Did we take a left turn somewhere? Is this wrong? What, what happened? I thought Jesus was the one who brought life and light, and all of a sudden, we're in the dark over here. Take heart, the Gospel of Mark says. The road of Jesus is your road as well. Your road, the road of Jesus, means you're on the right road. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's me. Let's pause. That's me all the time. I'm like surprised. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a trial. You know, and like <laughs> Peter's just, kind of, buddy, do not be surprised. <laughs> okay, thank you, Peter. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar, this, this is an extraordinary line, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Look, we are tempted to be surprised by fiery trials and to think we are on the wrong road, but sometimes it means actually, counterintuitively, that it means we're actually on the right road. So uh, uh, it was like a couple years ago, I was trying to get to King's Kids, which is a ministry here in town. Anybody like know from King's Kids, familiar with King's Kids? Uh, yeah, I love King's Kids. They're, it's a great ministry. And I was out there to, to, to meet with some of the folks there, and I hadn't been there in years. And so I'm driving in the Upper Valley, I don't know if you've been there, but it is not clear where it is, right? It, it, you, know, you drive by a house, and I drove into like a house being built, and the workers are looking at me like this. I'm like, hey, it's not that. So I'm, I'm driving back and forth multiple times. Finally, in humility, I call Cam, my friend there that works there, and, and I'm like, bro, where is this thing? And he describes like, okay, are you by a canal? And there's kind of a road, like it looks like an access road or something. And, he's, and, and I'm, you know, I'm on that road, and I, I'm like, yeah, but... You know, I, I think, I don't know. And he goes, okay, let me ask you this. Does it look and feel like you're kind of going the wrong way? And I said, yes, it does. And he says, good, okay, that's it. Just keep driving down to the end and you'll get there. And sure enough, I, it felt as though I were going somewhere that I should not be going the wrong way. And then I arrive, King's Kids, super cool campus, super fun. What's the point? The point is this. Sometimes as a Christian, you will think, it feels like I'm going the wrong way, right? It feels like I'm going against culture. It feels like all the cars are going this way and I'm going that way. This can't be right. And Jesus says, that's it. That's the road. The road to discipleship is a rocky road. The road of Christian discipleship will be dark at times, but the road of Christ is the right road. And here's, here's the truth. One of the purposes of being on the road to Christ is that the Lord may shape us to look more like Christ. We want to look like Jesus without walking the road of Jesus sometimes, right? Like, I want to look like Jesus. Great. This is the road. Not that one. Don't like that one. Is there a different road? Here's the truth. Soft roads produce soft Christians. Rugged roads produce rugged Christians. And the call to Christ is the call to the rugged road, to take up your cross and follow him. But that doesn't end. It doesn't end there because the road to the cross is also the road through the cross. Verse 13 in 1 Peter 4 says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Meaning that the road to the cross is the road through the cross and to life and resurrection. The road of the Christian is the road of Christ, and we know where the road ends. It's not as though, okay, man, I don't know where this is going to go. We know where it's going. 
We know it's hard, but we know that at the end of the road, there is not a, a grave, but an empty tomb. That, that the end of the Gospel of Mark is two women coming to the tomb and a shining man in white saying, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The end of Mark is an empty tomb. The end of Mark is the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if he walked out of the grave, so will we. That's the end of the road of Christ. Look, let me just tell you a story as we wrap up here. So recently we were, we were trying to drive to Sedona. I'd never been to Sedona in my life. And so we're driving to Sedona, and, and there's kind of a main highway road, and then there's kind of another road that's supposed to be faster. And we had kids in the car, and we've been in the car all day, and it's getting dark, and it's dark, and, dark, and it's finally so dark you can't really see anything. And I'm worried because I'm just like, man, this seems far out in the middle of nowhere. There's like no cities here, and, I'm, and I've never been there, so I'm thinking this is going to be weird and lame. And I, I haven't stayed where we're staying, and... I don't want, and so I'm thinking like, I don't know, maybe we should just stay in Phoenix and try to, you know, see if this is going to work. And so we, we finally find the place and it's late at night and all the kids are like grumpy and you know, we get everybody in bed and I'm just exhausted, fall asleep, wake up in the morning. We have a bunch of trash that we left out. So I bag up the trash and I'm walking out to take the trash to the dumpster. And where we were staying is like right on the edge of town to where you could see this mountain vista behind you. Now, look, I'm used to looking at mountains. I love the Franklins. I think they're gorgeous. But I had the bag. I forgot that I had a bag of trash in my hand when I saw these mountains. I walk out. I look up. And there is this glorious vista of mountains illuminated by the morning light with stripes and oranges and reds and yellows. And I kid you not, there are like hot air balloons like going up in the air. There's a beautiful cloud over high, and. And, and, and I'm just thinking, am I dead? Is this it? <laughs> Lord, you know, died in my sleep. <laughs> and, and so out of kid you know, I start walking out with the bag of trash in my hand, like, you know, a few dozen feet and realize, oh, I still have this trash. Like, I got, where's the trash? I forgot what I was doing. And the point is this. So often in the Christian life, the road seems dark. And the road seems like this can't be right. But morning will come. And in the light of the morning, we will look back on the road and think, oh, that was easy. I could, I could do it again. I remember thinking, it's funny, the, the drive felt so long to get to, to Sedona. And then once we were in Sedona, I was like, it didn't take that long. Because of what was there. So, Christian, the road to the cross is your road, but it is a glorious road. It is a road that ends in life. And two things to remember on the road. First, remember that Jesus Christ walked the road further than you ever will for you. He exchanged himself for you. He went to experience things that you will never have to experience and in light of that, any bumps or rocks or, you know, on the road should be light and, 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 as Scripture says, light and momentary afflictions, working for us an eternal weight of glory. You're like, man, my destiny was that, and it's over here. I, I'm good. Second thing we remember 
is the road of the cross is our road. It, it's the right road. If you're, if you're in trial this morning, it does not mean God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean you're off the reservation. If you're seeking to follow Christ and it is hard, hang in there. This is the road of Christ and it ends in glory. So what we're going to do now is we're going to end by taking communion together. And so I want to invite you to take the, the cup in front of you. And I want you to take just a minute. You can open the cup. If you're a Christian, we invite you to participate with us. If you're not a Christian, we ask you to observe and, and, and see the symbolism of what we're doing. We're about to symbolize, in a sense, this great exchange that we've talked about. So take the, the cup in your hand. And I want us to just take a moment. I know our lives are busy. I know we got places to be. But I want you to take a moment and say, Lord, Lord, from Mark 15, what are you speaking to me today? What's the one thing you want to impress on me? Is it, is it that I need to be humble, not arrogant, as I look at the road to the cross? Is it that I should be in awe and wonder, and I'm often not? Is it that I should be encouraged that I'm on the right road? Is it that I should hold on and remember the morning is coming? Whatever it is for you, just take that moment and take that moment with the Lord right now. Mark 14 says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Him for us, please take the bread. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Him for you. Please take the cup. And then please stand as we close. Oh, Lord, I pray that, that as we leave, you would do a work in our hearts that would outlast just the few minutes that we've been here. Lord, I pray for those in affliction that need the encouragement of Mark 15 the, and the encouragement of the gospel of Mark, that you would encourage them today, that, you, that they would feel, even as we sing, in a sense, you coming alongside them, walking the road with them. I pray that they'd experience the presence of Christ and the presence of the Spirit in their lives right now as we close. And Lord, I pray for anyone that... that, that for whom the exchange is, is new, that, that they may be wrestling with, man, do I, have I really seen that before? And, and wrestling with whether they are a Christian. Lord, I pray that they would press into that. And if you're calling them to receive the gift of this exchange this morning, I pray that they would do it. Even now, even as we sing, I pray that in your name. Amen. <laughs>